Well, we've been talking about rethinking the church, and uh, many of you, you came here with a pioneer heart, with a willingness to say, you know what, hey, I, I don't know what this is going to look like, I don't know, but I, I'm coming by faith just because I, I believe in what God's doing, and I'm jumping in, and, and there's a lot of, um, there's an element of faith as, as there's things we talk about as values and things that we're looking towards the future, and um, how is this? And so, so often we'll get questions about, are you going to have a building? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? And those are always, we're welcome. Any questions like that, totally fine. But, uh, but the most important thing is not what we're going to do, it's who we are. And the who we are and the, the formative days of the DNA as we're coming together, as we're discipling, as, as, as lives are changing, and as we, uh, the, these early days are critical because we're building a foundation and we're going to replicate who we are and so we, who we are is critically important, critically important. Hence the need to rethink the church. I've been writing some thoughts as I've been thinking about this. And um, several weeks ago, I wrote this thought. In the average church, discipleship can happen, but it is seldom intentional, strategic, or in the existing programming. And a lot of churches, there's so much stuff going on, a lot of activity, a lot of things happening but there's not a lot of uh, intentional discipleship. You can't really disciple people in a classroom. I mean, you can happen, but is that really the best way for it to happen? It's kind of like teaching the fish on a marker board. It's just, you know, it's better to hit the lake. And that's where um, you learn the best way to, to fish, right? And so, again, discipleship, I don't know that's really happening. And yet the sad thing about the church is that we people think that it is. Churches think, here's some statistics about the church today. That I came across recently. This is a recent study by Lifeway Research surveying 2,500 Protestant churchgoers. They found that only 16% of participants said that they read their Bibles daily. And another 20% said that they read the Bible a few times a week. Only 23% agreed strongly with the statement, when I come to realize that an aspect of my life is not right in God's eyes, I make necessary changes. So in other words, almost 75% of people with the statement, when I come to realize some things aren't right in my life, I make necessary changes. They would say, yeah, not, not necessarily. In the past six months, only 29%, less than a third, um, said that they had shared with someone how to become a Christian twice or more. And 57% said they had never done it at all. And here's the funny thing about all of this. The most peculiar of all the statistics in this is that there was very little change in the actual data from, from year to year or from the last couple of years, but over 55% had indicated that they had grown spiritually in the past year. Okay, so we, we 25%, less than 25% are actively in the word. Um, less than that are actively sharing their faith. And yet, uh, and, and then and, and less than that are listening when God tells them, hey, you need to change this area of your life or that area of their life. And yet, over half of them believe that they've grown spiritually. There's a disconnect on what it means to walk with Jesus and what it's about. And so when we think about this and we go back to the Bible, we think about, well, what was what does it mean to be a Christian? Let me give you another shocking thing. Do you know that the Bible seldom talks about being a Christian? Um, the, being a Christian or Christians, which was a label, kind of a tag that was thrown on um, associating people with Christ, who was not a popular person in the early church. In the book of Acts, the church of Antioch, there was the first time that they labeled a group of people as Christians. There's only three times in the Bible that that phrase is used, Christian. But over 270 times, the Bible refers to disciples. Disciples. So the predominant term referring to um, 
Christian, what we call Christians, was really disciples, or you might go on to say followers of Christ would be kind of a definition of a disciple. Interestingly enough, Jesus never asked anybody to be a Christian. Jesus never invited anybody to be a Christian. Jesus never asked anybody, come forward if they'd like to be his follower. Come forward if you would like to be a Christian. Come forward and sign this card and fill it out and do. And I, and I, there's nothing wrong with walking forward or walking backward. We walk backwards when we want to make decisions here at Cross Life. You know, following Jesus is not about a card, not about walking forward, not about a label for that matter. What, what is it really about? Matthew chapter 16. Jesus tells his disciples, and this is just a little bit past what we looked at last week, which was Jesus saying, you're Peter, and upon this rock, the rock of your confession, I'm going to build my church. Jesus saying that he will be the cornerstone of the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against thee. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against my church. Remember, Jesus, if you were here last week, was standing in front of a place that was an evil place that had a temple that was set apart for the worship of Pan, one of the false gods of Egypt uh, or of um, Greek mythology, and it's really the, the image that, we, that many people have taken on to personify Satan. It's kind of a goat-headed, um, half-man, half-goat-looking kind of creature. And so often when you see depictions of what Satan might look like, which the Bible says that he could be like an angel of light, so he's very deceptive, he'll appear however he needs to, so uh, to deceive people. But nonetheless, Jesus standing in front of a place that had a cave that was believed to be the access point to Hades, the underworld, the place of the dead. He says, uh, I'm going to build my church and in in the gates of hell will not prevail against. It. And then just a couple verses later, he says these words. He says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. Now, now Jesus had just said the gates of hell will not prevail. And then he said, hey, by the way, guys, I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to be resurrected. And Peter, remember, Peter says, no, Lord, you will never die. You know, and, and, and Jesus turns to Peter and says a shocking thing. Get behind me, Satan. It tells him, it rebukes Peter, tells him that, uh, you know, your way of accomplishing my, um, the advancement of my kingdom isn't the way that it's going to go down. And then he turns around after saying, I'm going to die. He invites his disciples and he says, anybody who wants to, let's make it clear. Let me draw a line in the sand. Anybody who wants to follow after me is going to have to deny themselves. And where is that in the message of Christianity in our culture? You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, in our culture, the church is vastly different. The, the thought of denying yourself, really, the, the way we grow churches today, and, and I know this quite accurately because, you know, we're trying to do that. And we are bombarded with lots of different theories of how you grow a church, how you're supposed to do that. And, the, and the, the predominant idea is you find something that's attractive to the culture and you put a bunch of... Um, programs and things together that will get people to come. And that's how you grow a church. Well, where is denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus part of that methodology? And the answer is it is not. It's not. There was a guy that sounded the alarm about this not long ago. Carl Brenton in the gospel of for a neo-pagan culture, he said, if the aim of the church as is to grow, then the way we do it is to make people feel good. But when people discover that there are other ways to feel good, then they leave the church they no longer need. 
or they go to the other church that offers other programs that are better, that make you feel better. And that's the other option. The relevant church is sowing seeds of its own irrelevance, he says, and losing its identity to boot. The big question today has become how to get the baby boomers, this is several years ago, back. What techniques and methods will do the trick? Polls are taken on what baby boomers want, and churches are competing to make sure that they get it. And that's what happens. And so if you think about our culture right now, in uh, Washington County at least, about 20% of the population is actively engaged and involved in church, which means 80% of the population is not actively going to church anywhere. Now, they might say that they're a member of such and such church, but they're not actively going anywhere. And the churches, ironically, the churches in our culture, and this is throughout the country, are, are competing for the slice of the pie that includes the 20%. While the other 80% is really off the radar. We don't really care about the other 80%. We only care about the 20%. So churches try to outdo one another to figure out how we can attract the 20%. We're all fighting over a slice of the pie when the rest of the group is just, I, I guess, could just go to hell because we really don't care about them. So we don't really think through, there's got to be a different way that we can do this. And here's what's shocking. When we look at the early church in A.D. 30, okay, this is uh, right around the time of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, tells the disciples, go and, and pray. And, uh, well, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. But before you do that, go and pray and wait, and I'm going to send the comfort. The Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to empower you. When my Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be empowered to do the mission. But in A.D. 30, there was probably more than this that were followers of Jesus, but there was about 150 um, historians um, estimate in that upper room. So let's, we'll just say the church was probably about 150 at the beginning at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Rapidly adds three, then 5,000. Um, you know, lots of people following Jesus, um, testifying to their following Jesus by baptism. And uh, the church is multiplying. By AD 100, it is estimated that there was 25,000 uh, believers, followers of Jesus. 25,000 followers of Jesus. So then in 310 AD, which is before Constantine legalized Christianity. So within the span of 200 years, okay, Christianity, get this, with, with um, little resources in a persecuted environment where you could get killed for following Christ. Okay, many Christians being martyred. It grows so fast in that 200 year span that by 310 AD, before it's legalized uh, Christianity, there is 20 million believers estimated in the world. 20 million. The Chinese church in 1949, which was the beginning of the, the Mao Zedong communist takeover of China, in 1949, around that time, um, they kicked all of the missionaries out of China. And it had been kind of a colonized, British colonized um, region. And so there was, there was a lot of um, British missionaries and American, for that matter, missionaries in China. They all got kicked out, persecuted. Many of them killed. Um, leaders in churches were killed. I mean, they, the communist um, takeover came in and wanted to eradicate religion, and Christianity was on the top of its list. And so of the um, 2 million believers, many were martyred and killed. And then 1980, around 1980, after the death of Mao, the uh, what's called the, the bamboo, maybe you've heard of the Iron Curtain of communism. Well, they called in Asia the bamboo curtain. It kind of dropped a little bit to where there was a little more access to China and people could get into China a little more and missionaries were able to start getting back into China. And they expected to find that the church in China had been obliterated. 
They were shocked to find out that in 1980, there was estimated to be 60 to 80 million Jesus followers. 60 to 80 million followers of Jesus. And by 2013, some have estimated there's as many as 159 million believers. A good chunk of that, the majority of that is the underground church. It's a persecuted, hidden church where they meet in homes and huts in the middle of the night because they're not free to worship. And then there's the um, authorized um, church in China that you're, you can go to legally, but there's massive restrictions. And so they add those two numbers and then they take away a percentage because there's a chunk of people in the authorized church that go out in the middle of the night and they sneak and they go to the house churches. And so there's some overlap. So accounting for that overlap, they're still coming up with approximately 159 million. Evidently, I've been told that there are more followers of Jesus in China than there are active members of the Communist Party in China today. Church is exploding and God is doing a great thing. And here's the shocking point. In the early church, and I would argue in the Chinese church today, religion basically is illegal. Certainly in the early church, massive persecution throughout this period with limited uh, benefits of there. Very few people have well, pretty much nobody had church buildings. Certainly the house church, they just meet in little homes. But no, but there's no church buildings on every quarter. There's there's no um, people often didn't meet publicly. Sometimes they met in caves. Sometimes they met in um, uh, tombs. There's a lot of different places they meet anywhere that they could go where they could worship freely and not be persecuted. So they would hide. They had no church buildings. They had persecution. They had limited access to the Bible as we know it. They didn't have a thousand copies and everybody had four or five different translations on their shelf at home. They didn't have that. They didn't have apps in their pocket where they can access the Bible any day of the week, any time that they want. They couldn't Google a verse that they were curious about. They was, there was little to no access to Scripture. And what they did have is often they would have copies of the writings of the New and Old Testament that they could find at churches or different um, pastors might or different believers might have fragments of or certain parts of Scripture. So they have very limited access to. Now, it was there um, and people could find it, but not everybody's home. Um, very few people had a copy of the Bible. So it, explosive growth with little access with, um, to Scripture, with persecution, with no buildings. And then get this, uh, very little institutional training, professional clergy, commentaries, Bible study programs. They didn't have all that stuff. And then on top of that, they had no seeker-sensitive services. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Seeker-sensitive services, when you, you, can, you try to structure your service so it's attractive for people who are far from God, they would want to come because it will be very appealing and attractive to them. And so, you know, you, instead of preaching on a passage of Scripture, we're going to talk today about The Hobbit or whatever, and you come up with some um, catching fire, you know, whatever the latest movie thing is or the latest cool, whatever. And, and, and I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying they didn't do any tactics like that to grow the church, okay? They didn't have seeker-sensitive services. They didn't have youth groups. They didn't have a worship band. They didn't have a choir. They didn't have kids' ministry. They had very little of the things that we think are critical and necessary. They have no websites. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Twitter. And yet, look at what God did. What if? What if we paused for a moment? What if we rethought what God has called us to be about? What if we went back to the basics? I mean, we have some great resources and there's some great things and some great tools that can help us spread the word about Jesus in our community. But I've got news for you. Christianity, we, we are rapidly becoming a post-Christian um, nation. In fact, I would argue as a, as a nation, we have gone to a, be, from being kind of a, what's seen as a Christian nation. Forget our roots and our foundation. I'm just saying with the way people think in our culture. We are a post-Christian nation. 
And arguably, we are getting to the point where you could arguably call us a pre-Christian nation. We are a pagan pre-Christian country now where we're waiting for somebody to come live and explain and articulate the gospel to other people empowered by God's spirit, living radically different, not a new cool program and advertising campaign. That's not going to reach the 80 percent. That will continue to fight over the 20 percent as the other 80 percent goes to hell and the decline of the church continues in this area, which is about 12 percent every year. There's about a 10 to 12 percent decline in those actively involved in church in Washington County. Okay, so uh, we're not winning the board. And by the way, the population is growing. So the gap widens. So at the beginning, what did Jesus do? Let's go back to what was the foundation? What was what I already mentioned to you? He said, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. Let's go back even further. If you go back to Matthew chapter four, verse 18, here's what Jesus said. He said, while walking in the scriptures, while walking in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who he called Peter and Andrew, his brother, and casting a net into the sea, uh, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Then in chapter nine, verse nine, chapter nine, verse nine, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and he followed Jesus. And then in chapter 10, verse 37, one chapter later, um, he says, if you don't love your me more than your mom and dad and brother and sister and kids, whoever loves his son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus at the beginning, what he invited people to be about is to simply follow him. To simply follow him, invite him into a relationship. See, many people are busy today about kingdom activity and kingdom work. We say and we're doing the church stuff and we're busy and we're doing stuff and we're serving and we're ministering. But the problem is. The problem is they are loyal subject. If we are loyal subjects of the king and we're trying to advance his kingdom, then we have to know the king. The advancement of the king flows out of an intimate relationship with the king. There's a book called Move, and it says on the top of it, Reveal. And Reveal is connected to a study that was done by Willow Creek um, Church, which is one of the pioneers of seeker-sensitive churches, which I was very critical of a minute ago, um, as you saw. And, but let me say um, that uh, I, I really respect Bill Hybels, and I respect Willow Creek, because in trying to do this, they are willing. These are, these are folks that are willing to ask the hard questions, to evaluate what they have accomplished and how they have grown. This Willow Creek is a massive church, has a network of churches, has done incredibly reached, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been reached for Christ through their ministries. Okay, and they might do some things. You might say, well, it'd be better if they did this or better if they did that. But um, and quite frankly, the traditional churches that are really critical of seeker sensitive churches like a Willow Creek, okay, churches that are a little more modern, contemporary in their methodology and their different things. The, the traditional churches that are critical of that, of, of the church that, that, you know, plays a secular song and has a catchy sermon series to attract a crowd okay those older traditional churches they're hypocrites because they're just as attractional minded they just forgot that the world has changed over 50 years so they'll have the gaither Gaither, uh, vocal band to draw a crowd they'll have a um, a sing uh, you know gospel sing they'll have a country gospel whatever and they expect to draw a crowd from that that's why they're doing that and they're operating the same thing they just don't realize that the culture's changed 
tastes have changed and the music that they think is awesome, people don't really care about nowadays. It's not bad. It's good music. fine music. But you're not going to draw a crowd under a certain age group with that music. Okay? Nothing bad with that. But it's funny how they're critical of another model and yet they do the same thing. They just do it for a different generation, right? But in the reveal study, what they did is Bill Hybels, they got some really smart advertising um, people that that look into why people make certain decisions when they walk into a room um, at Starbucks or at um, Banana Republic or whatever, at some store. When they walk in, what do they do? Which Do they go to the right? Do they go to the left? Do they go straight? Where do they go? And then what is the catalyst to make that, for them to make a decision and to buy the product? So taking that methodology in this advanced um, uh, research that they were doing, they said, well, let's go to the church and let's say, the win for us will be, what, what, how do we measure the win in the local church? And they would say, okay, it's not just attendance and tithes and offerings and money and, um, you know, buildings. And let, what are the marks of a mature believer? And so they said, marks of a mature, mature believer are people that are, um, you know, growing in the word. They're, they spend time, personal devotional um, life is, is, is going good. They, should, they talk about Jesus with their neighbors, friends, coworkers. They're actively talking to people about Jesus. They're serving they're faithfully giving. Um, these are kind of the markers of a person. If they're mature and they're walk with the Lord, they're talking about Jesus with other people. They're ministering um, in the body of Christ and in the community. Um, they're, they're giving and um, they're in, in the word. And so they looked at this thing and they said, well, what's the catalyst towards getting a person to, um, to spiritual maturity? And the, one of the churches that's one of the best in the world at putting awesome programs on and getting a crowd to come and then teaching them some awesome things realized that the programs they were doing were not, they, they would have thought that that was the catalyst that resulted in maturity. When they, we put on this big program, we did this thing on marriage, and, and we had this big, everybody recommitted their vows, and it was really awesome, it was a really great thing, and then because of that, people were more mature. What they found is that's not where it is happening. The, the biggest catalyst towards spiritual maturity was people's own individual relationship with Christ. Isn't that amazing? And they said, we have invested millions and millions and millions of dollars on a methodology of ministry in the simple, basic truth of how to grow a church like those, shot, the, those images we just looked at, how to advance the kingdom of God is just to get people connected with the king. And if they're intimately connected with the king, they're going to want to be about the king's work with the right motives. And it was so simple. And they had missed it. But praise God that they were willing to publish that, take a shot, have other people be critical of them, and then begin to make changes so there could people could be about that. So that my admonition to you this morning, and I want to challenge you with, as we think about rethinking the church, is I want to just challenge you in your own walk with the Lord. How was your walk with Christ? When's the last time you prayed? In, in, in alone, with, not for a meal, not for, you know, a specific whatever with your family, but I mean, alone in your own relationship with Christ that you talk to the creator of the universe who has made himself abundantly available to us through enormous cost through his son who went, uh, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died a brutal death on the cross, being not guilty, paying for our guilt to rip the veil open so that we have complete access to the throne room of God that we can come boldly through the blood of Christ into the presence of God to pray. How? When's the last time that you did that? When's the last time that God, who has gone through extreme 
measures to give us his written word, to speak his word through prophets and through the apostles, and that has been recorded and has been meticulously passed down generation to generation, that God has, in his sovereignty, has made sure that we have an accurate representation of his word on earth through the Greek and the Hebrew, um, 5,000 plus manuscript copies of the original letters that have been translated into so many languages, and we have multiple options of different translations in English, many of them very good, some of them not so much. When's the last time we cracked that open and we spent time memorizing, meditating, chewing on the Word of God? Not just even to learn and be educated, but to hear from God. To open the Word up and to to hear from God. Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The Father removes. And every branch that does not that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, by the way, somebody has debated this. He removes. He takes away if it doesn't. And the premise, the thought was that in the language and looking at some of the historicity of how they cared for vines, really it should be better translated. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit is lifted up, not taken away, but lifted up. In other words, God doesn't just, oh, they didn't bear fruit today. Cut them off, throw them in the fire. No, if they're connected to the vine, he lifts them up, cleans them, gets the mud off, gets the dirt off, lifts them up, props them up so that the vine could begin to thrive again. And then those that are doing good, he puts a little hurt on them. He cuts them, slices and dices and prunes, which is arguably painful, so that they could be more fruitful. But he goes on. Already you have been you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit on, by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever b- abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words, which is the word of God, abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified. How is his father glorified? How is God glorified? God is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You want to know if somebody's a disciple? Do they bear fruit? If they don't bear fruit, then you have to argue they might not be a disciple. So I don't know if I know that I know that I know Christ. Well, you, is there fruit in your life? Is there desire for the word of God? Is there conviction of sin? Is there love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control? Is there a battle going on that you would desire those things in your life? Because if none of that's there, then I would say, yeah, you might not be a follower of Jesus. But if those things are there, even a little tiny bit, a little bit of fruit, there's going to be fruit there. If you are uh, one of his disciples, my father's glorified that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples as the father has loved me. So I love you. Abide in my love. Rest in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. By the way, think about that thought for a second. 
When we think about following Christ and keeping commandments and obeying the law and doing what he says, uh, do you think of joy? And Jesus says, man, I've told you these things and I've spoken them to you that your joy may be, my joy may be in you, that I might place my joy in you and that your joy may be complete. Your joy is in obeying God. There's a delight in that. Jesus said, it is my, I delight to do the will of my father. Jesus enjoyed, he had fun. And that's not God doing some kind of bait and switch thing, trying to tease us. He's saying, you know, when you walk with me and when you're abiding in me and I'm producing fruit in your life, you will, there will never be a time you will be more satisfied. You will be so satisfied and you will enjoy. God has no problem with you being happy. He wants you to be happy. He just knows that if you find your happiness in his created things rather than in the creator and enjoying his creation, then you're going to be an idol worshiper. If your happiness is in created things, you become an idolater. You are into idolatry. You're worshiping things rather than the one who made them. And you will not ultimately be happy. That's hedonism. It's the pursuit of our own worldly pleasures. And God has no problem with you pursuing pleasure as long as it's in him. And that's not because he's being mean. It's because he knows what's best for you. And he knows when you pursue joy in him, your joy will be complete. And you, that will, you will be very satisfied. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, and without control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, but having the appearance of godliness, yet denying its power. Hello, church in America. Hello, professing believers. I like to say professing believers. Not everybody who says they're a believer is a believer. They might profess to be a believer, but again, we, we look at fruit to determine who's really disciples, not judging one another, but lovingly caring. That's why it's so important for us to be connected with one another is so that we can watch over one another's souls, not so we can look the other way because I don't want to judge. Please care about me enough to watch my soul, and I want to care about you, and I want to watch after your soul. He who captures or wins souls is wise, Proverbs 11.30 says. Let's be about looking out for one another's souls, okay? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But he says here, they had appearance of godliness, yet they denied his power. Where's the power? Where's the power? Well, I can tell you, it's not in the programs. Programs don't eradicate power, but programs do not make power. Power comes from the Spirit. Power comes from God's Spirit overflowing through the Word of God in an intimate relationship with Christ. Psalms chapter 3, I'm sorry, Philippians 3, 8, and 11. You just write these down, but I just want to saturate us with the word of God in this, this thinking. Indeed, I count everything but loss as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus in, uh, as my Lord. For the sake of, uh, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him 
not having a righteousness. I love this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but uh, but that which comes a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Theologians call this a passive righteousness as opposed to an active righteousness. We're constantly running around trying to establish our own righteousness. And God is saying, I have a righteousness that you will never accomplish in your own. And I'd like to give it to you so it can be active in your life as a passive righteousness, not one that you have achieved, but one that is there if you would just lean into it, if you would just live from it. It depends on faith, the righteousness that comes from faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him, in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus goes on to say in, in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus says to the Jews who have believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you guys abide in what I've been telling you, you're my disciples, Jesus says. And if you will know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. And they answered him and he said, we are the offspring. This is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We are the offspring of Abraham and we have never enslaved anyone. How is it that you would say you will become free? They're totally missing the boat on what Jesus is trying to tell them. And Jesus answers and says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. In other words, you're playing from a different set of rules and your lives speak of smell of um, manifest nothing but bondage and legalism and sin and self-righteousness and an attempt for active righteousness. You achieve your own righteousness. And I'm telling that if you abide in me, my words in you, that if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus goes on to say, that um, the word sets us free, that his word, abide in my word, my word ultimately sets you free. Lies bring bondage. The truth will set us free. The truth of the word of God sets us free. It's all about knowing Jesus. That's the key. That's the key. Let me give you a couple final thoughts, then we're done. Um, in this, Jesus said, simply put, let's boil it down to the foundation. What does it mean to be a Christian or better yet? What does it mean to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus? Jesus said, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And I would encourage you to memorize this because this is the DNA heartbeat of Cross Life Church. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Follow me means following Jesus. Uh, it means having a right relationship with him, pursuing and surrendering to King Jesus, having an intimate relationship. It means we hear from him, we talk to him, we, we are growing in him, we're spending time with him. And in the process of pursuing him and growing in our knowledge and experience of a legitimate, real relationship, not just studying about Jesus, gaining knowledge about a figure who lived historically 2,000 years ago, but in an intimate relationship, we're talking to him, letting him talk to us. As we're doing that, we're following Jesus. We, we, the next part of that is, we are changed by Jesus. Jesus said, follow me, I will make you. We're changed by Jesus. He promises to make us. Philippians chapter 1, he says, he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. So he's changing us. He's transforming us by his Holy Spirit, convicting us of sin, by the gospel becoming bigger as he reveals how messed up we are, how awesome he is, and how much we need Jesus. So the gospel's growing in us. We're being changed. We're being transformed. I'm not a perfect, and I'm not, I haven't arrived, but hopefully I'm more like Jesus than I was a year ago. Or two, year, two years ago. We're being changed by Jesus. And the last thing, follow me. I will make you, what, fishers 
of men. We want to be on mission with Jesus. That's why I love Jesus' invitation to being a disciple. It was always follow me. In other words, you can't sit still and be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is on the move. He's not static. He's not geographically centered. He is all over the place. He is going to the nations. And so you better uh, get in gear. Following Jesus is about the head. And then being changed by Jesus is about the heart. Being on mission with Jesus is about the hands. And so those three kind of metaphors, those images, wrap your minds around those. Think about those because as we do, as we do a, a life groups, when we're discussing the word, we talk about the word and what God's saying, and we're, we're, it's the head. And then we begin to discuss, well, what does that mean to you? What is he saying to you? How does it apply to you? That's the heart. And then, okay, what does God want you to do this week? That's the hands. How do we apply this in our life? This is the rhythm of our lives. It's not like, let's work on, let's work on the first stage, knowing Christ. And when we achieve that, then we'll shift to the second stage, being changed by Jesus. And then when we achieve that, then we can suddenly be on mission. This should be happening all at the same time. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You're growing in your knowledge of him. You're being changed by him and you're on mission with him. And as those three things are happening in concert, you're growing and you're maturing because of an intimate relationship with Christ. So understanding those things, look at Luke chapter 24. I want to read this verse. Final thought and we pray we're done. Luke chapter 24. I love this verse of scripture. That very day, two men were walking, going to a village named Emmaus. And about seven miles, it was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were walking with each other. And they were talking about the things that had happened in Jerusalem, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So Jesus is kind of tagging along with them. And they don't really realize he's there. And with, But their eyes are kept from recognizing him. So he's kind of hanging out, then he begins to kind of enter into their conversation. But they don't even know, they don't realize who he is. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood there looking at sad. And one said, named Cleophas, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? What are you talking about? And he says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, a mighty indeed, and word before God, and all the people and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We hoped that he was the Messiah. They, they weren't sure. Yes. And besides all this, it's now the third day since this had happened. There's been three days. Moreover, some women of the company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. And they came back saying that uh, that he, they had seen um, a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found that it was as the women had said, but they did not see him. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, are you slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that Christ, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he Inter, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When they drew near to the village that they were going, and he acted as if he was going further, they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went, he went in to stay with them. When he had sat at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it, broke it, gave it. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And then they said to each other, I love this, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road 
while he opened up the scriptures to us. Here's the here's the application. The word of God is all about Jesus. The whole thing's about Jesus. Now, sometimes some parts are harder to understand how it relates to you, but the whole thing's about Jesus. And Jesus sat down with them in the beginning of the beginning. He, as he's walking with them, he explains to them and he points to them the prophecies concerning himself with them not even realizing who he was. And when they finally, he shows them who he was and then he vanishes. They, they step, back, step back and they go, were our hearts not burning within us? See, the, the, the thing about a church that explodes in growth like the early church and the church in China, for one, persecution doesn't hurt. But for two, it comes from people that are intimately equated. They are desperately dependent upon Jesus to the point where they desperately have to hear. They long to grab the, the, the um, fringe of his garment that he would pour out his blessings on them, that they could experience not money, but that they could experience an intimate relationship with Christ, that their hearts would burn in them because of their intimate relationship. They so long to know Jesus in his power, in his glory, in the advancement of his kingdom, that nothing else will possibly satisfy but tasting that. And if we would be a church that would get a vision for that, that beyond everything, our goal is to know Jesus to devour his word, to talk to him in prayer, to be intimately connected. And do not, please do not feel condemned by these words and go, oh, good night, I gotta have a longer quiet. I gotta spend four hours a day reading my Bible. Talk to him like you would talk to a friend throughout the day as you go. If if you are disciplined to where you, man, I I could knock out a three-minute quiet time every day. Great, do three minutes. And when you you get that nailed down, then bump up to five, maybe 10, 15, whatever. Stretch a little bit. One day you have an hour you can spend with Jesus, do it. Spend that hour with you. Next day you have three minutes, great, fine. Just get to know him, okay? He's not a box on your to-do list. He is a living person who is alive and at the right hand of the Father who wants to be intimately equated with you, okay? So enjoy fellowship with him. That we would be passionate about the word of God. But man, whatever your favorite meal that you go, you know what, I'm gonna, I want to long for this because it's even better than that meal. And that that would be your passion so we're going to pray we're going to sing we're going to reflect upon these things that god has said to us you have an opportunity to give put your info cards um those of you who are um, guests or have prayer requests or things we can be praying for you about you can drop those in the baskets but the bottom line is i want to just challenge you to pray about as we talk about rethinking the church who's god calling you to be and we're not asking you to come up and selling you on some methodology we just want to get you connected with the king and if we're connected with the king then everything else falls into place And we're going to see as the kingdom advances and as we get to be a part of seeing God's glory um, and the joy of the Father as we delight in what he's doing.